Before we get started with today's show, I just want to give a quick disclaimer regarding the sound quality of today's episode. Not that it's terrible, but it's going to be uh, different in spots. We had some technical issues, um, more like scheduling issues, where our special guest today, Rand McReel, was unable to get over to our place and get into our sort of ad hoc studio setup. So we needed to go to his house to record And his house turned out to have high echoey ceilings and problematic, uh, basically sound reflective issues. So uh, you're going to hear some variation in the sound quality today. Uh, When it sounds kind of echoey, then we're at his place. So um, don't be alarmed. But I just wanted to give you a heads up. It's not your sound system that's on the fritz. It's just different quality sound files at our end. Anyway, with that, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 21 of The History Files. We're recording this on July 7th, 2015. I'm Gordon Fry. Last week I was off in California dealing with some family emergency issues, and uh, Nancy was kind enough to not step in my shoes, I guess, sit in the chair and uh, record a, a a nice episode. Uh, But we're getting back today to more of our normal variety. I was uh, reminded that that on episode 19 I mentioned uh, about my grandfather and World War I and being Irish and whatnot. Uh, My mother's father, Ansel Mendel Tenner, how do I get that wrong? Ansel Mendel Tenner. He was going to Bethany College in 1915. He got tired of having to work his way through school and said, I'm gonna join the Navy, at which point his mother dragged him down to the recruiter and he signed up in the Navy, just like his uncle Dan had been. Uh, I have a letter of interest that he wrote exactly one year prior to the entry of the United States in World War I discussing and describing his uh, new birth on the USS New Jersey, BB-16. But what is of interest, really, is the reason he joined the Navy. This is 1915. There was a big, a huge war going on in Europe. And being of Irish descent, his father was born in Ireland, and even though a Protestant, they still didn't like the English any. And um, he joined the Navy because he figured we're going to get into this war and by God, we're going to fight the English and the real war is going to be on the sea. So (laughs) he joined the Navy. The other point of interest was that when he was at sea in, on April 6th of 1917, when war was declared, uh, according to him, they got the word that war had been declared, but the message didn't mention as to who we were at war with. 
could have been either Britain or Germany as far as most of the sailors were concerned. So he claimed that for about two weeks they sailed around not being quite sure who they were supposed to shoot at. <laughs> so I, that could have led to interesting results. What that story says to me is that when we look back on historical events, things that become that end up in the te- in the uh, history books as historical events, even if you're only a few years beyond them, I mean, 10, 20 years into the into the future, we know so much more. We've got all by then all the facts have come in, or more of the facts have come in. You've got point, different points of view and commentators, and we kind of we kind of know what's going on. But you know, your grandfather is in the middle of this basically breaking history he doesn't have he's just a little guy on the on the ground well on a boat not on the ground and he doesn't know he's in the middle of it all well also things only seem clearer in retrospect uh because a lot of the dirty laundry has been uh stuffed away out of sight for example in world war one there was a uh, a huge first amendment issue of the wilson administration suppressing any opposition to the war. The German language press in the United States, which was actually quite large at the time, was pretty much put out of business by the post office. And um, there, there was all kinds of things. The, um, the, the German-American community was against the war. The Irish-American community, they weren't against the war so much as they were against us being on the side of Great Britain. And uh, that was basically what my grandfather's family is part of. As I noted, his his father, my great grandfather, was born in born in Ireland, uh, and although they were Protestants and they were descended from French Huguenots, they weren't really Irish. Uh, they certainly were not pro English. No. And so it was. In fact, my great uncle, the older brother of my grandfather, mentioned how his division in World War One was assigned to be a part of the British forces. And uh, they weren't real happy with that. It was a very long slog for the United States upper crust to convince most of America that the British were indeed our special friends and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, we look back on World War II with this nostalgia vision with, oh, we're British chums on the other side of the pond and, and, you know, all this camaraderie and goodwill. and, And it's like, well, that just didn't, spring fully formed from the head of Zeus. I mean, that, that took some doing. Yeah, and we came, we went into World War I with misgivings, and we came out of World War I with a fair amount of uh, anger as to why did we sacrifice here just for British and French colonialism to continue. And, of course, the Irish uh, Easter uprising had started in 1916, and there it was a hard sell and Mm -hmm. only in retrospect do we see this marvelous you know patriotic rise and so world war ii was an easier sell because we were attacked uh world war one was a hard sell yeah okay well we've got kind of an interesting show today uh a little departure from our normal format and part of that is because of our super wonderful guest that we have today Rand mcgreal and uh um we actually, as I'm editing this together, we recorded the main part of this earlier today, 
and we found that we had so much great material that the guys just we just had the guys keep on going and it's so much that we're gonna have to cut it into two parts and so today will be part one of our, our first session with Rand McGreal in um, um, economics writer, I guess he right. styles he's a, himself. He's a writer in economics, and he has three books out, which we talk about yeah. a little bit. And um, he's done all kinds of interesting things, though, so he's definitely got uh, got strong opinions. Yeah. To me, I'm I'm not a numbers person, so when someone says, oh, we got a great show about economics, I immediately go into a coma. But I don't stay tuned because this is it's actually very, very interesting. There actually is a lot of history in this. They're basically going to be talking about the history of money, which is something we just take for granted. Well, money is money. You go buy stuff with money. It's like, well, that wasn't always the way of it. You know, thousands of years ago, we had a trade economy, a barter economy. And in some ways, a lot of people are kind of getting back to that anymore. And and in fact, on the American frontier, uh, as recently as 150, 200 years ago, there really wasn't much cash available. And so, for example, on the colonial frontier, people used deerskins as uh, as a uh, item of of Trans, uh, trans to transfer when, when you say wealth. colonial America, Amer North American colonial, like eight, nine, 18th yeah, 18th century, century yeah. late 18th okay. century, uh, and a, a deerskin, mm -hmm. an adult male deerskin, was worth guess what? A dollar. What's what's it called? A buck. Oh, duh. <laughs> okay. Well, that explains that. So, you know, when there's no cash available, people figure out other ways of, uh, of making transfers. Did they use beaver pelts as currency, too, or was that just a company thing with, like, the Hudson's Bay Company and, and more, more corporate kind of thing? More corporate generally, but beaver skins were definitely worth a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And so they were definitely a, a major trade item, but they, weren't, they didn't have the same transactional currency, if you will. Between As, the average person. Yeah. yeah. Whiskey was also a good transactional <laughs> currency. <laughs> Everybody wants whiskey. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, with that, why don't we uh, go ahead and take care of our history headlines. July 11th, 1533. Pope Clement VII excommunicated England's Henry VIII. Almost exactly two years to the day later, on July 6th of 1535, Sir Thomas More was beheaded after refusing to join Henry VIII's Church, bleh, bleh, Henry VIII's Church of England. For a good film on this subject, check out A Man for All Seasons, starring Robert Shaw and Paul Schofield. Though filmed in the 60s, it holds up well as a man fighting for his conscience. To be remembered in this, however, let us not forget that Sir Thomas More was more than happy to condemn Protestants to be burned at the stake for similarly standing by their consciences. July 11, 1804. Former Vice President Aaron Burr fatally wounded former Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Hamil Hamilton died the following afternoon. The purported reason for the duel was due to insulting comments made by Burr concerning Hamilton's wife, but of course it was a far deeper issue than that. One issue was that the deciding vote between Burr and Thomas Jefferson for the 1800 presidential election, which due to its closeness was thrown to Congress to decide, was cast by Hamilton in favor of Jefferson even though Hamilton and Burr were in the same party. 
Burr represented a pardon me, Burr resented a comment by Hamilton, who was said to have commented that he may have spent his political career fighting Jefferson, but he knew that Jefferson was an honorable man. Even more pertinent was that Burr was the head of the Manhattan Company, which brought water from the Bronx down to the city of New York. This in itself was no big deal, but in the small print of the charter, it said that the company could also hold and lend money, making it a bank. Since this broke the monopoly of the big New York banks that they had in the industry, of which Hamilton was a part and a mouthpiece for, there were issues. Interestingly, the Manhattan Bank, which came from the Manhattan Company, later became the Chase Manhattan Bank, which is now Chase. So if you bank at Chase, know that one of the founders shot Alexander Hamilton, the guy on the $10 bill. July 7, 1846, Commodore John D. Sloat occupied Monterey and declared California annexed to the United States. This was the second time this had been done. The first time, under Commodore Thomas Ap Catesby Jones in 1843, he's not Welsh at all, no. was a bit of a jumping of the gun, and he had to give it back after a few weeks. Catesby Jones then went to Hawaii to reinstall King Kamehameha III on the throne, which the British had recently overthrown, and also picked up one Herman Melville while returning to the U.S., furnishing him furnishing Melville with material for his bestseller of 1849, White Jacket. Incidentally, Melville's description of the flogging of sailors in the book helped to convince the Senate to outlaw flogging in the Compromise of 1850. July 7, 1898, the United States annexed Hawaii. Although the Dole family and allies had gotten the American ambassador to order sailors and marines from the USS Boston to help overthrow the legitimate queen in 1893, President Grover Cleveland refused to annex the country and, in fact, recalled his ambassador in disgust. However, the McKinley administration was far more in favor of expansion, as seen by the Spanish-American War, and annexed Hawaii at the same time it conquered Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Of course, Puerto Rico and Guam remain, as, and Hawaii remain as part of the American Empire. July 9, 1900. The British Parliament proclaimed that as of January 1st, 1901, the six Australian colonies would be united as the Commonwealth of Australia. This federal commonwealth was given exactly one year to get itself organized, and after a decade of planning, consultation, and voting, a federation of colonies was achieved on January 1st, 1901. Melbourne served as a temporary seat of government from 01 to 27, while Canberra, a uniquely and utterly planned city, was being constructed. July 10, 2003, Spain opened its first mosque in Granada since the Moors were expelled in 1492. The Muslims had invaded the Iberian Peninsula in 711 on their way to conquer France, where they were stopped by Charles Martel in 732. They remained in Spain, fighting amongst themselves and their Christian neighbors for the next 700-plus years. However, from 1212 on, there was a gradual and steady push south by the Christians and never a move north by the Muslims until their final expulsion in January of 1492 by the most Catholic, their most Catholic majesties, Ferdinand and Isabella. This week we actually have some current events, history news, and uh, we're going to start off with this hot tip from Star Fury Zeta, just sent in today. 
It seems as though a German pensioner, a 78-year-old gentleman in uh, northern uh, Germany, um, in the town of uh, Heikendorf, uh, had a panther tank in his basement. And uh, a 1943 tank is one of the best ones that the Germans made. It wasn't quite a tiger, but it it was a good panther. And uh, he seems to have had that stashed in his um, in his basement for some time. Although the mayor of the town said, uh, "quote from um, quoting from a newser article here that I wasn't surprised by the discovery because the elderly man was chugging around in the thing during the snow catastrophe in 1978." <laughs> Uh, sounds like a good deal to me. You know, you need sure, a you, why not? snowstorm, pull out your tank. Yeah, you need a tracked vehicle to get around. Why not? And he also added, some people like steam trains, others like tanks. Uh, likewise, still quoting, and because the tank no longer uh, fires weapons, the pensioner's lawyer tells the German paper, uh, Süddeutsche Zeitung, actually, I guess it's not in northern Germany, it's in southern Germany, Süddeutsche Zeitung, via local that the man wasn't hasn't actually broken any laws. Oh. Prosecutors, meanwhile, are investigating whether the possession of the tank, a torpedo, anti-aircraft gun, and other weapons violates Germany's War Weapons Control Act. Oh, lighten up. Uh, <laughs> Orth, who was the mayor, did concede, I took this to be the eccentricity of an old man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Sure, why not? There seems to be more to it than this. And anyway, sounds cool to me. I wish I had a panther tank in my basement. <laughs> this is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section today, I want to mention Lost Foundation a conversation with 18th century economist Richard Cantillon by Rand McGreal, who is our guest today, of course. Uh, it's available on Amazon and paper. It's also available through Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, it's um, he put this out in 2013, so just a couple of years ago, and it's a really interesting sort of novelization of, of a hypothetical discussion between Rand and uh, this, uh, the 18th century father of modern economists. Yeah, father of the modern yeah. Ver yeah. economics yeah. system. Yeah, it's, um, and it might, it might sound dry, but it isn't. It's really interesting, and it's a kind of a fun read. And it's funny, I, w I was only about the first chapter in, and instantly it made me think of Steve Allen's old PBS television show, Meeting of Minds, which I remember watching with my mom when I was in, I don't know, junior high or whatever. This ran, it ran from, uh, I think, 1977 to 1981 on PBS. And Steve Allen, who was an absolute genius the anyway. Oh, my goodness, that guy was brilliant. If, any, if there are any mystery science theater fans in here, they did a sketch. I don't know. I think it was a... I think it was during the Mike Nelson years where they basically had this sketch where it's like, if you think you have thought of something, Steve Allen probably thought of it first. <laughs> they had the steve meter It's like, well, we'll run this by the steve meter Nope, Steve Allen thought of it first. And, and 
I'm sure the joke was lost on a lot of people, but Takai was insanely intelligent. And he, uh, it was uh, uh, scripted, but to give the illusion of spontaneity, show where he sat down with figures from history and they Leonardo da Vinci or Paganini. Um, or the Empress Theodora. Right. Or Teddy Roosevelt. Marie Antoinette. And um, just, oh, it, was, it was amazing. Really, really well done. And what he tried to do was... Um, unless it was somebody for whom we have no written record of anything they ever said, he really tried to use their actual words that they had written down or recorded words that they had spoken and try and keep it as accurate as possible to, so that it was things that they had actually said in their lifetime. And it's um, it's really hard to find. It's it, Unfortunately, you can't just go out and buy this on DVD, and I don't know why not, because it's a really, it holds up. It's really good. It's all over YouTube. You can find segments all over YouTube, little short bits of it. You can find, if you go on Amazon, you can buy uh, transcripted versions. You can buy the scripts, uh, the complete scripts, and um, luckily, Audible has the sound version of it, just the sound recordings that you can get. So you can buy those from Audible, but the videos are lots of fun and they're just not, they're just not out there. Somebody needs to get on that because it's really cool. You can find a, v, a few VHS tapes of a couple of the seasons out there if you want to pay $80 for a VHS tape. That's how popular it is. People want them. So I don't know why PBS hasn't put those out. But there's lots of fun. And because Steve Allen considered it an educational program, he never put a royalty on it. So it's not like it's tied up in legal stuff. Anybody, any, you know, it's not like it's going to cost somebody a lot of money to do that. And because he never put a royalty on it, if you want to stage a, a, a production of an, of an episode of Meeting of the Minds, you can get your hands on the script and just do it. A lot of people are doing these in theaters around the country, and, and they're very well received. But anyway, Meeting of Minds from is a, is, a, is a hoot, and yeah. History lives again. Rand McCreel is an eco economics writer who has written several books on, guess what, economics. Uh, both textbooks and for those for general consumption. Among them are Rule of Money, Killing an Idea, and Lost Foundation. They're all available on Amazon, by the way. Uh, he bases most of his economic theories on his experiences as a senior manager at a national bank, international construction firm, a national retail chain, and as an executive at an urban commercial developer. Rand holds an MBA and undergraduate degrees from Oberlin College. Uh, he's currently a lecturer and writer trying to collect trying to correct, <laughs> price trying to collect too, anyway, trying to correct the many misunderstandings of how to manage a national economy. His main interest is monetary policy. So Rand, to get things started here, let me ask you about the history of economic thought. Well, economic thought is uh, rarely outlined, I think, the uh, way it should be. There are two tracks in economics. Uh, the first track is government uh, control, which began with uh, John Maynard Keynes and uh, his, uh, his school. Their idea was that government was the best organization to manage the economy. 
Uh, government had the flexibility and the power uh, to manage the economy, and it was not uh, self-serving. But the fact is that economic uh, theory began with Richard Callan, who hopefully we're going to talk about today. And uh, Richard Candelon uh, initiated uh, economics as an activity or a system that depended on the individual, what products the individual uh, purchased, what uh, creative ideas the individual had, uh, and what roles the individual took in the economy. Eventually, this led to the development of the market philosophy. So we have two tracks in economics, state-run uh, economics and individual-driven economics. So the individual economic driven in the economics, basically millions and millions of people making personal decisions which drive the economy. Correct. Okay. okay. So, you know... the. The different schools have different tools. Interest rates are important to uh, uh, state-run economists. It has little or no uh, role in uh, market uh, systems. Okay. And the two sides, you know, uh, kind of conflict over what is important and what we should be doing. Okay, so um, that then brings us right into uh, Richard Cantillon, who basically invented economic theory, right? Uh, that's correct. He, uh, Adam Smith, who is considered the father of economics, uh, recognized uh, his debt to Richard Cantillon and in the preface to uh, uh, his uh, Wealth of Nations uh, gave credit to Richard Cantillon as being the first systematic economist, the first person to really explain how the economy worked. Okay, and Cantillon, so he was born 16-something or another? 1680 is the best guess. We really don't know, and there are no pictures of Richard Cantillon, uh, and we don't know uh, when he died, although our... Their best guess is 1730. Okay. Um, and he was a Irish Frenchman, so, or Franco-Irishman? Uh, yes. He, um, his family uh, traveled to England and then on to Ireland um, with a Norman conquest. Okay. So he's, yeah, the Anglo-Norman. Right. Okay. And uh, his family lived in uh, southeastern uh, Ireland, um, you know, for almost um, 500, 600 years. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, landed gentry. Uh, his family lost uh, their land to Cromwell when okay. Cromwell invaded uh, Ireland. And so as Richard grew up, uh, he had a good background uh, in economics and running a, f a farm or an estate and so forth, but his family was impoverished and totally dis.
possessed of all their land. Okay, so he he did have a good grasp of microeconomics. Correct. Okay. <laughs> um, now, note that he, uh, well, first off, in your book, uh, Lost Foundation, in which you have an interesting conversation with Richard Cantillon, uh, you discuss um, his views on interest rates and how, again, as you mentioned earlier, how they have very little to do with the individual uh, in the marketplace. So do you want to go into a little more detail on that? Uh, sure, because... And I think it's important because if you listen to CNBC or MSNBC or Fox Business, uh, you'll have the uh, you'll hear the commentators talking about interest rates and one tenth of a, a drop. You know, is going to move the market this way or that way. And uh, Catalan, um, it must have been the same in the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth century because he wanted to make quite a point in the fact that interest rates are were not the decision point for uh, business people, entrepreneurs. And in fact, uh, it was a bit of um, an effort by government to uh, assert some control by manipulating interest rates. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about John Law. And, and fiat currency? Well, John Law uh, is, uh, interestingly, comes from a Scottish uh, banking family, uh, very uh, wealthy uh, in Scotland. And um, he was uh, in his father's uh, bank uh, when his father uh, died. The family was quite rich, and John Law in inherited their wealth. Uh, his interests lay more in uh, acquiring money and spending money than in managing money. So he quickly left uh, dreary uh, Scotland for the bright lights of London and other European capitals. He was primarily a gambler and a card counter. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a good way to put it. He, you know, he did fairly well with uh, unsophisticated um, uh, gamblers. And so, as he was able to use his wealth to get into some of the um, uh, gambling card games uh, with the wealthy of Europe, and that allowed him to, um, you know, be somewhat successful as a gambler because the competition was not quite as intense as it might have been in the local pub. Um, it also gave him a chance to communicate with uh, the leaders and some of the leading bankers of uh, Europe. And he was in Antwerp. He was also in uh, Paris. I think he traveled uh, to Spain um, and in all of those capitals. He gained knowledge uh, about uh, the banking system. When he was in France, uh, he met the Duke of Orleans, who was uh, the regent 
uh, after Louis the Fifteenth uh, was born. I think he was only. If, I can't recall how old he was, but he was yeah, a youth. Yeah, in his minority. Yes. And so the regent was in charge of uh, the realm for four or five years. And the Duke and John Law became great friends. John Law uh, kind of promoted his own theory, which was that paper money uh, could be used to solve the financial uh, problems uh, of European countries, particularly of France, because Louis the Fourteenth had drained uh, the currency um, in wars and, of course, Versailles. So this was, uh, since John Law had a system, uh, he was able to find a lot of interested ears to hear uh, what he suggested. Okay, and of course, just to <clears throat> remind our audience, currency at that day and age was gold and silver. Correct, correct. And uh, one of the problems is there's a limited supply of it, and there was a very limited supply of it in the, in the 17th century. Business was slow to develop simply because uh, they didn't have currency. Not that people didn't have currency either. You know, the economy was still a barter economy, except at the highest levels, at the 1% or greater one-tenth of percent level. But bankers needed money in banks so that if they uh, purchased uh, some cattle or a butcher purchased cattle, he would own owe the uh, rancher uh, money for that. And the way those exchanges occurred was in the bank. That works fine if they both use the same bank, which was the case in most of the small villages. But if, uh, in fact, the cattle came from another part of the realm, then there was an issue. How did you transfer the money from one bank to another bank? And there was insufficient currency to allow that kind of trade. Okay. So when he came up with his theory of fiat currency, uh, paper money, um, <clears throat> so his concept was just to leave the gold and silver in the banks proper. And was it a, 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 a basically a debt note then? Was that because that's basically what fiat money is? It's a, a debt to be called upon later. And that was the whole concept at the time, too? That's right. Uh, the money could be redeemed for gold or silver, um, you know, under certain circumstances. At least theoretically. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in your book, again, in Lost Foundation, you mention you talk about uh, Cantillon's theories about, or at least his viewpoints on employment. And I guess you would call living wages. Now, it, in a lot of ways, a very modern idea that whereas a job is only worth, only pays what the job is worth, still a person has to be able to survive. Anyway, um, he had some rather interesting ideas. Do you, do you want to get into that a little bit? I hope I uh, 
know my own book well enough to speak <laughs> on some of these topics. <laughs> I should have uh, given you more warning. <laughs> um, yes, he he overall he had a theory that uh, wages had to be high enough so that people could um, meet their own needs, but they also needed to be high enough that there was some excess that would stimulate uh, the economy. Um, and also be able to buy their own product. Right. Sort of like Henry Ford wanted to pay his employees enough that they could actually afford to buy a Model T. Right. He, he was very interested in getting money into uh, his customers' hands, which in this case were the people of the world, uh, which was not the case, as we described when talking about John Law. Money was uh, something just uh, that the 1% had, and there was no system really to create wealth uh, for the workers of the world. Okay. Um now, Cantillon also, if I recall correctly from this, he's the one who actually invented the term entrepreneur. Um, he, the word was around, but he's the first one who really used it in a book, defined it, and uh, popularized uh, the term. Okay, so our modern terminology, our modern uh, definition then is Cantillon's. Uh, correct. And uh, the Economists that followed Cantillon uh, considered that one of his most brilliant observations uh, because people did not understand that there was a, in the economic e equation, there had to be a creative person who either uh, came up with a new product or, you know, had an idea. If you do the same thing over and over again, uh, the economy is not going to grow. And as a banker, a banker lends to entrepreneurs. So Catalan was in position to recognize how important this person was. In his day, that was traders. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, according to Catalan, employment grows through business creation by entrepreneurs correct okay which again is a very modern very almost well i guess that's also the austrian uh theory as opposed to the the right teams. austrian economics um you know that's one of their foundation principles yeah. okay um and also, you note that entrepreneurship determines the economic vitality of a country. So that, if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, the red tape, if you will, the the bureaucratic red tape that uh, encumbers entrepreneurs also encumbers the economic vitality of that country. Yes, I mean, one of the things that concerned seventeenth uh, and 18th century uh, economists is, you know, why is England doing so well? You know, France has got a better climate, better culture, better looking people. You know, how <laughs> come the English are doing so well? So all economists, you know, uh, 
proposed uh, different theories. The only one that has really stuck and rings true is Catalan's idea that entrepreneurship is rewarded with wealth. And so England had just fewer restrictions on entrepreneurship than France did. Uh, that's, yes, that's right. I mean, France is bureaucratic today. It was bureaucratic in the 16th century. Yeah. As was Spain. Yes. And neither of those countries are doing particularly well even today. And of course. Don't leave out Italy or yeah. Greece. Or Greece, yeah, exactly. Which I definitely want to come back to Greece because it's definitely in the news right now. But before we do that, I want to ask you about the Mississippi bubble. Okay. And basically bubbles in general, because the first one was the, uh, the tulip bubble, right? Uh, that's right. That's about 100 years before uh, Cantillon. But um, uh, it was very significant because the Dutch, you know, uh, other than the English, kind of drove uh, economic vitality in Europe. And after the tulip bubble, they were and uh, wars with Spain, they were in somewhat of a recession. Um, but the Mississippi Company, to, we really need to return to John Law and finish that story. Oh, yeah. So he, um, he made this acquaintance with the Duke of Orleans, explained his theory about the use of paper money. And here's the way it worked. He, uh, he suggested to the Duke, if France gave him authority to uh, create, uh, take, well, let me start over again. If he had the right to develop the French assets in North America, which is uh, the Louisiana Purchase and the um, Mississippi Company, he could pay off the debt of uh, France by selling shares in the Mississippi Company. People would uh, pay their pounds and livres for uh, a, a share of the company, very much like our corporations are today. And uh, John Law would put that money into a special bank called Bank Royal that had the authority to print money. And those would become the assets um, in the bank. The Mississippi Company was highly promoted. Uh, they got newspapers to write articles about um, you know, what the settlement looked like, you know. Streets weren't quite paved with gold, but there were streets and they were paved and there were houses and mansions along the street. Uh, the hero of this story, Richard Kenelon, sent his um, uh, brother to uh, check out uh, what in fact New Orleans was and he described it as uh, 50 shacks uh, surrounded by mud on an island in the middle of the Mississippi River. No chort, no churches, no uh, civil control whatsoever, and uh, just a populace waiting for the next uh, booze bar to come down the river. So in other words, the, the uh, 
newspaper accounts were pretty much akin to modern journalism. Yeah. <laughs> well, very similar. Uh, Not but, as advertised. You know, the journalists never left Paris, which made their observations difficult, but apparently not impossible. Sort of like the ones in New York and Washington today. <laughs> never leave the Beltway. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, so, okay. Um, so now John Law had some money and the, the shares of the Mississippi company uh, went up, uh, increased in value. I can't Geometrically. Yeah, I think it was 100% in 30 days and, you know, 1,000% in nine months or so. Now, uh, so uh, John Law and Richard Canelon uh, meet each other. And uh, Richard Canelon, many people, many books describe him as an investor in the shares of the Mississippi Company. But he was actually a little more clever than that. What he did was loan to the speculators the money to buy shares. And since shares were going up 100% a month, he was able to convince them to pay uh, interest rates of 25% or so. Now, he justifies that by saying, you know, he knew it was going to crash and many of them would not be able to uh, repay, uh, repay him. So he needed a certain percentage uh, of people to repay him and pay back uh, the higher interest to cover all the losses that he was sure to incur. He recommended to his friends that they not invest. Uh, he's famous for all the letters he sent to some of the wealthiest individuals in uh, England and uh, those, he knew more people in England than he did in uh, France, but uh, in France and the Dutch colonies, uh, he recommended they not purchase shares. Well. The inevitable happened. Uh, uh, people began to question uh, uh, New Orleans as a source of uh, gold and silver and jewels and gems, and uh, the stories started to collapse. Plus, the clever speculators began to sell their shares when it reached uh, approximately a thousand percent. And uh, suddenly the Mississippi company uh, collapsed. People wanted their money back. There wasn't any money because <laughs> it went to the Royal Bank and it was spent by the Royals and John Law. <laughs> yes. so, so was New Orleans literally pitched as a, a place that was going to be a source of vast wealth? Like, like you know, Central America or something where we're going to, there are mountains of gold just waiting to be harvested or did they think it was going to be tobacco crops or? No, they they thought it was going to be another Inca empire. In fact, they thought it was. I mean, the stories in the papers kind of described it that way, you know, natives coming down the river and trading, you know, at this uh, uh, growing city center. Hmm. Hmm. Not exactly as advertised. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit then 
segueing a little bit into what's the difference between stock speculation versus stock ownership and investment? Well, just like the uh, uh, crisis in 1929, most Mississippi shares were purchased through some sort of a margin arrangement or that worse, it was borrowed money. So that's considered a, a speculation of the worst kind because what you're doing is not owning something for the long term. You just want to get in, ride uh, the rise in value, and then sell. Okay, so like today's stock market, um, you have, it, it's outrageously high compared to any possible return you might get on dividends. So basically, this is all due to speculation. Uh, correct. It's not, um, you're hoping that the stock will be higher tomorrow. And that, in fact, was the case of Mississippi shares for about nine months. It was literally, they were literally worth more the next day. And that caused one of the big problems for uh, uh, bankers, but the great opportunity for Richard Kentelon because he was w willing to lend money to uh, speculators where other people were not. And nine months is not that long of a time back then. I mean, we have instantaneous communications nowadays, but they were, it's not like they were sending ships back and forth to Louisiana constantly. So there, what started to tip people off that that this thing was was all castles in the air, and that, that it was uh, that they'd made mistakes. I mean, did they, was it just they weren't hearing back from there, or were people like Canelon's brother coming back and saying, "Wait a minute, this is not as advertised"? Yeah, well, Canelon's bro brother actually—it's uh, not over in in you know from its start to its collapse is probably nine months, but there was like almost a year of nurturing uh, mm -hmm. the idea that this is a, a good investment and convincing people. Plus people needed, people really reported the profits that they were made, not um, what was occurring in Louisiana. People were interested, I doubled my money. Uh, last week on Mississippi shares. So, so that kind so of... So this is artificial environment where this... It's, it's a bubble. I mean, it's yeah. just like, uh, the, you know, the tulip bubble, you know. A few tulip bulbs sell for uh, a cow. You know, the next week they sell for the 10 acres of pasture land. You know, a month later, you're able to buy a house with a tulip bulb. So uh, the, the same thing vast sums of money were being uh, made uh, in the Mississippi bubble. And Cantillon, uh, he manages to uh, get his patrons and himself, uh, his bank. His bank did speculate in Mississippi shares, and it's a sole proprietorship, so essentially it's his money. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, the, um, you know, when people got out, lots of their money, some 
historians think Richard Canelon was the richest person in the world uh, at that time. Uh, I think that's a world that probably doesn't include China. But, um, <laughs> yeah, or probably doesn't go much beyond uh, you know, Turkey. Um, but in any case, he was very, very wealthy. The people who stayed into the shares and rode them down to zero were very poor and they had huge debts with whoever had provided them the money, including uh, our friend John Law, who went bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, so that was his end too. Okay. Yeah, he went back to gambling uh, and lived a few more years, but very unsuccessfully. So that's part one of our two-part, going to be two-part conversation with Rand McReel, uh, talking about the history of money and talking a lot about his, uh, referring to his book, Lost Foundation, which is about uh, Richard Cantillon. Richard Cantillon, Cant- who pretty much invented economics. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome stuff. And again, uh, we'll have a link. We have a link to that book in the show notes, and it's easy to find on Amazon. Uh, one one thing that I found really interesting about this discussion is the whole the bubble concept. I mean, we've all heard of the South Seas bubble and different bubble things. That the recent, um, this is two, 2015 when we're recording this uh, recent housing bubble that kind of peaked about almost 10 years ago. Um, and we're still kind of, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, we're still kind of floating on it. It collapsed in California right after, right, right about 10 years ago, and everything just sort of went to pieces. I never really understood myself that whole concept of what does this bubble mean, and it really is a bubble. It's this artificial construct where something is, is artificially hyped, and it's completely unsustainable. Um, whether It's, it's in, in, literally inflated like a balloon or a bubble. Yeah. This inflation of price to absolutely no real end. Yeah, I'm I'm still I'm I'm still kind of mystified about the whole this whole New Orleans bubble and Well the Mississippi bubble, yeah. Or Mississippi bubble, yeah. And it's like, okay, who started it? You said I think you said it was John Law. Pretty much John Law. John Law seems to be the one behind it. Um but the hype is what really got it going. And it seems like well, we mentioned earlier in other conversations, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh well, yeah, we were we were talking talking about different bubbles, and there's there's the book bubble, where you've got why is this something a bestseller? Is it because it's a good quality book, or is it selling because it's selling? Is it popular because it's popular because everybody's reading it? And yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey has been talked about in other forums about how. Um, it's not exactly the greatest book of all time, and that's putting it mildly, but it became popular because it was popular, because everyone was reading it, and that just sort of fed on itself. Right, and people want to be part of a movement. They want to be part of something uh, that is popular, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost um, herd instinct. Everybody runs with the herd, and, which is usually a bad idea in my experience. But because the herd is going off of a cliff, yeah. Um, but that's our instinct. People want to be part of it, and they want to have, they want to be able to con- converse about the same things at the water cooler or whatever. And so you get these, um, you know, people get literally caught up in the moment of. Um, it's like a bidding war on 
um, eBay. eBay. Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't want the thing that bad. It's really not worth what you're paying for it, but oh my, I gotta have it, right. I gotta have it. Everybody's bidding on it, I've been, I'm a bid on it too, and which is great for the seller. It's marvelous <laughs> for the seller. If you're a seller, you want a bidding war. Yeah. And at the height of the housing boom, you had people standing in line, long lines, to just have an, the opportunity to buy a horribly overpriced house because they didn't think they were ever, ever, ever going to have a chance to buy a house. And that was the hype. A lot of people made a lot of money. A lot of people lost a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. And that seems to be the, pre, the, the ultimate thing of a bubble is that the people who were not in the know were going to lose their shirts. So for all you listeners and people listening to this, I mean, what's your opinion on this? Have, what other bubbles have you seen? Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Feel free to chime in. You can leave comments at uh, our site at SciCon, at the History Files page at SciCon, or um, at our site at badcatshows.net. Uh, you can leave comments there, or email us directly, badcatshows, um, badcatshows at gmail.com. So join us next week for the exciting wrap-up of our pretty interesting conversation with Rand McGreal. I, I look forward to listening to it myself. I'm, I've had a great time. Great. We'll see you next week. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at scicon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.